Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2. Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, and very soon-to-be Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, just returned from the capital city of New York State, Albany. Albany, why not take Albany? I did some comedy there. The stand-up comedy world is starting up again. I've got uh, shows in Portland, Oregon this coming week, and I suspect, well, I don't suspect, I don't know. I was thinking maybe it'll be short-lived because the pandemic continues to simmer and little pockets of flame are popping up here and there because some jerk-offs refuse to get vaccinated. And so that's a little bit of a bummer because that could potentially impact my livelihood. How was Albany? Not great. Not great. I was fine. You know, nice folks. But, you know, as as much as it pains me to admit, I don't love stand-up. I don't love doing stand-up. I like it. You know, I like it fine. I can't say I look forward particularly to getting back on the road and doing stand-up. Uh, I don't know. Am I, I don't, sometimes, I, you know, I, am, I, am I even good at it? The answer is yes. All right, let's call a spade a spade. The answer is yes, I am good at it. But I don't have that thing that the best comedians have where they just crave stage time. They write jokes all the time. They are immersed in the world of stand-up comedy. They're honing their crafts. I don't have that. 
I wish I did. I wish I was as singularly dedicated to stand-up comedy as some of my peers. I wish I was as singularly dedicated to anything as my peers who are singularly dedicated to things. I'm not. Nothing holds my attention for particularly long. I mean, the fact that I've managed to get this far into Frankenstein, and before that, a Jude the Obscure, is something of a minor miracle to me. The fact that I've been able to uh, sit down and write books is a, is, a, is, a, is a small miracle to me. But like, I'm not dying to write another book. I don't know. Like, what do I love? Isn't that, isn't that the perennial question? What do I love? Not who do I love? I feel like I have a pretty solid answer to that question. And the answer is you guys. The answer is you guys. Did that sound condescending? Did that sound insincere? It was slightly. But I do have fondness for you guys. That is certainly true. Um, but like, what do I love? Like, wow. It seems, uh, I don't know, people in showbiz, and I count myself among them, you know, you think once you made it in showbiz, like, you're going to stay in showbiz. You know, maybe that's just true in any career. Like, you get into a career, you're like, I'm going to stay in that career because, you know, I've invested this much time in it. And while, you know, I, I, I don't know that I want to stay in showbiz. The problem is I don't have any other options. I'm trapped, like so many of you, so many of us. And yeah, I like it. I like it fine. Do I love it? I don't know. I don't know. Not that much. I don't love it. I don't love acting. Used to. But I feel like I haven't loved acting in years. I don't love stand-up. I don't know what I love. So my brain keeps darting from thing to thing to thing. You know? UFOs. Near-death experiences. My new thing is RVs. Our recreational vehicles. Why? Why? What is wrong with me? I mean, maybe there's a through line. And I think maybe the through line is the same that everybody has, particularly as you get a bit older. The kind of, um, the, uh, the grasping becomes less scattershot. You know, you're just kind of grasping at everything when you're little. Uh, when you're little. Well, you know, when you're younger. You're a young adult. Um, and then, it's not that your options narrow, although perhaps they do. But the grasping, I feel like, while maybe not always focused, seems slightly less scattershot if you can find the through line. So you might be thinking, well, there's no through line between UFOs and RVs. Well, but I think there is. That's the realization that I'm coming to, that I think there might be a through line between UFOs and near-death experiences and RVs and all the other things I'm interested in. And I think it's the same thing that all of us are interested in. It's a kind of, uh, it's a searching, a yearning for some kind of understanding. Okay, you, well, RVs are not necessarily, I mean, they are. Here's the thing. Why am I interested in RVs? I don't know. I've been, I've been looking at RV videos for weeks. Do I want to buy an RV? Not particularly. But there's something about it that's clearly appealing to me. So what is it? And what I think it is is the idea of simplification, you know, the idea of creating some sort of life for yourself of maximal freedom. How does that relate to UFOs? Well, I think the UFO phenomena and the associated paranormal phenomena around UFOs, near-death experiences, remote viewing, astral projection, etc., 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 
all have to do with the same desire to understand consciousness and there is a kind of um, desire for freedom embedded in that desire, a kind of spiritual freedom. I think they're similar. I think there's a physical freedom with the RVing. And by the way, I'm not buying an RV, although I think I picked out maybe the one that I would buy. It doesn't matter. Combined with the spiritual freedom of UFO stuff, or at least spiritual expansion. Let's call it that, not freedom expansion. And I think there's a, same, there's a similar spiritual expansion going on with people who want to hit the open road and want to be in campgrounds and people who go hiking on the Appalachian Trail, even though they have no business doing that. That's me. And I feel like so much of my life, and I suspect so much of your lives because I suspect so much of everybody's life, is about that, that spiritual expansion, expansion of consciousness, trying to understand not only who we are on a kind of local, in a local sense, but who we are in a kind of universal sense. How do we relate to each other? And it gets back to Frankenstein because it, 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 the, the, the story of consciousness and expanded consciousness and universal consciousness is the story of the creation narrative in some respects. I mean, in all respects. Because it ties directly to that question of uh, who are we? Where do we come from? What is our purpose? And that is the undercurrent of Victor Frankenstein, which we now pick up here in volume three, chapter five. This is the beginning of chapter five. Frankenstein is miserable because he's always miserable. You know, he's, he, you know, he's an emo kid. And, uh, you know, he's not sleeping. He's taking drugs. His dad is there to hang out and, and you know, tell him, hey, it's fine. Hey, you're going to be fine. Um, and the last chapter ended with, the fiend was not here, a sense of security, a feeling that a truce was established between the present hour and the irresistible, disastrous future imparted to me a kind of calm forgetfulness of which the human mind is by its structure peculiarly susceptible. I hate that word, peculiarly susceptible. And we talked about, I talked about that last time, how the mind in fact is peculiarly susceptible to a kind of calm forgetfulness. And if you believe in reincarnation, and I don't know where I stand on that topic, that is kind of the theory behind why we don't remember our precarnate selves. Because the mind is given to a kind of calm forgetfulness, because otherwise we would go crazy. Chapter 5. The voyage came to an end. This is Frankenstein and his dad. We landed and proceeded to Paris. I soon found that I had overtaxed my strength, and that I must repose before I could continue my journey. My father's care and attentions were indefatigable, but he did not know the origin of my sufferings and sought erroneous methods to remedy the incurable ill. He wished me to seek amusement in society. I abhorred the face of man. Oh, not abhorred. 
They were my brethren, my fellow beings, and I felt attracted even to the most repulsive among them, as to creatures of an angelic nature and celestial mechanism. But I felt that I had no right to share their intercourse. I had unchained an enemy among them, whose joy it was to shed their blood and to revel in their groans. How they would, each and all abhor me and hunt me from the world, did they know my unhallowed acts and the crimes which had their source in me. So this is just what I was talking about. Well, first of all, there's something kind of um, hypocritical to me. I don't know. Frankenstein says that he felt attracted even to the most repulsive among his fellow beings, and yet... We know that not to be true because the most repulsive among his fellow beings is, in fact, Big Buddy, and he made Big Buddy, and he certainly did not feel attracted to Big Buddy. So what the hell is he talking about? And again, you get into this distinction of my fellow beings being in opposition to the being that he created. So he does not consider Big Buddy to be his fellow being, and Big Buddy, at the same time, also does not consider that because he considered himself to be one of his fellow beings because of the way his fellow beings treated him. Um, but this is interesting to me, given what we were just talking about, creatures, he's talking about people, creatures of an angelic nature and celestial mechanism. Well, what else is the universal consciousness if not an angelic nature and celestial mechanism? I mean, it is one and the same, bro. Bro, your angelic nature is one and the same with the universal consciousness, bro. In my delvings into the mystical, I have been uh, trying to keep an open mind about all things. And sometimes it is hard to do so when you get into things like spirit guides and angels and the very personal relationships that certain people have with these entities, or shall I say, alleged entities. And yet in trying to keep an open mind, you know, you think to yourself, well, are all these people just nuts, these experiences that they claim to have had? Because there's many of them. And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know what the hell is going on with people. But it's compelling. If you keep an open mind about it and you just go and you just sort of accept things at face value, that this is their story and they're telling it, whether it be true or not, or true in the sense that I would agree that what their, their um, interpretation of it is true or not. It's compelling stuff. Look, who am I to plug somebody else's podcast, but I will. I've been listening to a lot of the Past Lives podcast hosted by a guy named Simon Bowne. And if you're interested in this stuff, I would recommend it. It's the Past Lives podcast with Simon Bowne is what it sounds like. Very calming. My father yielded at length to my desire to avoid society and strove by various arguments to banish my despair. Sometimes he thought that I felt deeply the degradation of being obliged to answer a charge of murder, and he endeavored to prove to me the futility of pride. Alas, my father, said I, how little do you know me. Human beings, their feelings and passions would indeed be degraded if such a wretch as I felt pride. Justine, poor unhappy Justine, was as innocent as I, and she suffered the same charge. She died for it, and I am the cause of this. I murdered her. William, Justine, and Henry. 
They all died by my hands. Well, I mean, that sounds like a confession of sorts. So why doesn't he just tell him the rest? My father had often during my imprisonment heard me make the same assertion when I thus accused myself. He sometimes seemed to desire an explanation, and at others he appeared to consider it as the offspring of delirium, and that during my illness some idea of this kind had presented itself to my imagination, the remembrance of which I preserved in my convalescence. I avoided explanation and maintained a continual silence concerning the wretch I had created. I had a persuasion that I should be supposed mad, and this in itself would have forever chained my tongue. But besides, I could not bring myself to disclose a secret which would fill my hearer with consternation and make fear and unnatural horror the inmates of his breast. I checked, therefore, my impatient thirst for sympathy. Well, not really, bro. I mean, when you say things like, uh, I'm the one, it's me, it's all me, and beat your chest about it, you're not exactly checking your impatient thirst for sympathy. And was silent when I would have given the world to have confided that fatal secret. Well, then why don't you do it? Yet still words like those I have recorded would burst uncontrollably from me. I could offer no explanation of them, but their truth in part relieved the burden of my mysterious woe. So, I'm a little frustrated with Victor Frankenstein here. Because it seems to me like, at this point, dude, three people are dead. Okay? Uh, William, Justine, Henry. All killed in one sense or another, by Big Buddy. You have taken the burden of their deaths upon yourself. You know he's coming for other people in your family. He's told you that. He tried to come for you. He tried to have you framed for murder, okay? And yet you refuse to just say the simple truth of the matter. People would not think you're crazy because you have some evidence at this point. And beyond that, you can explain exactly how it works. You can explain exactly how you did what you did. And if you just tell somebody, they'd be like, okay, this sucks. Like, this definitely sucks. Like, you created Big Buddy, and that's bad on you. But we know Big Buddy's out there. We know he's gunning for you. Like, we can do something to kind of help you out, bro. So why doesn't he just tell him? And then if you, need to, if you need to answer for the crime of creating Big Buddy, and by doing so, you save the lives of, you know, your dad and Elizabeth and whoever the hell else, isn't that better? Isn't that preferable? And wouldn't you, there, and wouldn't you feel unburdened by just telling the truth? Like, what is preventing him from telling the truth at this point? I really don't know. It doesn't seem like there's anything. It seems like you should just say it. Say it, bro. Confess. I don't know that you're guilty of anything, particularly other than, you know, bad science. And honestly, I mean, if you're guilty of anything, it's letting Justine go to her death. That's what you're guilty of at this point. You killed Justine because you easily could have said, this is what I did. I know you think I'm crazy. I can prove it, but let her go because she didn't do shit. You could have done that. You didn't do it. So you suck, bro. You suck. All right, let's take a break. My ass is chapped a little bit here with Victor Frankenstein, so I need to simmer down, take a break. We'll be back in a moment on Obscure.
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back on Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. Trying not to get frustrated with Victor Frankenstein, who just, you know, for all his book smarts, does not have any street smarts at all. It certainly doesn't seem to have any kind of emotional or moral intelligence. Maybe this is the problem with so much of our society, this materialistic society. You know, we, you know, he was going for personal glory, fame. You know, he was trying to do something nobody had ever done before. And he did it. He flew too close to the sun. Now he's plunging to the sea. My little Icarus. And, you know... Maybe the questions he was asking all along were the wrong questions. This is what I was getting to in the beginning of this episode. What do we love? What are the questions we're seeking to answer? What sustains us? What questions sustain us? If you answer that, what question sustains me? Perhaps you've answered the question, what do I love? So he's whining. And uh, he says, I killed him. And then back to the book. Upon this occasion, my father said with an expression of unbounded wonder, my dearest Victor, what infatuation is this? My dear son, I entreat you never to make such an assertion again. I am not mad. I cried energetically. (laughs) I am not mad. The sun and the heavens who have viewed my... Okay, so, okay, okay. Here comes the confession. Who have viewed my operations can bear witness of my truth. I am the assassin of those most innocent victims. They died by my machinations. A thousand times would I have shed my own blood, drop by drop, to have saved their lives, but I could not, my father. Indeed, I could not sacrifice the whole human race. The conclusion of this speech convinced my father that my ideas were deranged, (laughs) and he instantly changed the subject of our conversation and endeavored to alter the course of my thoughts. So he goes right up to the line, and then he doesn't do it. He's a coward. 
He wished as much as possible to obliterate the memory of the scenes that had taken place in Ireland, and never alluded to them or suffered me to speak of my misfortunes. As time passed away, I became more calm. Misery had her dwelling in my heart, but I no longer talked in the same incoherent manner of my own crimes. Sufficient for me was the consciousness of them. But not sufficient for Elizabeth, dude. Not sufficient for your family. Not sufficient for the people who are dead. It's not enough to be like, I'm at peace with it. He's coming for you, bro. He's the Terminator, bro. He'll be back, bro. By the utmost self-violence, I curbed the imperious voice of wretchedness. No, you didn't. Which sometimes desired to declare itself to the whole world. And my manners were calmer and more composed than they had ever been since my journey to the Sea of Ice. A few days before we left Paris on our way to Switzerland, I received the following letter from Elizabeth. My dear friend, it gave me the greatest pleasure to receive a letter from my uncle dated at Paris. You are no longer at a formidable distance, and I may hope to see you in less than a fortnight. My poor cousin, how much you must have suffered. I expect to see you looking even more ill than when you quitted Geneva. This winter has been passed more miserably, tortured as I have been by anxious suspense. Yet I hope to see peace in your countenance and to find that your heart is not totally void of comfort and tranquility. Yet I fear that the same feelings now exist that made you so miserable a year ago, even perhaps augmented by time. I would not disturb you at this period when so many misfortunes weigh upon you. But a conversation that I had with my uncle previous to his departure renders some explanation necessary before we meet. Explanation, you may possibly say. What can Elizabeth have to explain? If you really say this, my questions are answered and all my doubts satisfied. But you are distant from me, and it is possible that you may dread and yet be pleased with this explanation. And in a probability of this being the case, I dare not any longer postpone writing what during your absence I have often wished to express to you, but have never had the courage to begin. You well know, Victor, that our union had been the favorite plan of your parents ever since our infancy. We were told this when young and taught to look forward to it as an event that would certainly take place, Creepy. We were affectionate playfellows during childhood and, I believe, dear and valued friends to one another as we grew older. But as brother and sister often entertain a lively affection towards each other without desiring a more intimate union. Yeah, I would say that's true, that they often feel that way. May not such also be our case? Tell me, dearest Victor, answer me. I conjure you by our mutual happiness with simple truth. Do you not love another? Oh, poor Liz. Poor Liz. Worried that perhaps her own feelings are unrequited. You have traveled. You have spent several years of your life at Ingolstadt. And I confess to you, my friend, that when I saw you last autumn so unhappy, flying to solitude from the society of every creature, I could not help supporting that you might regret our connection and believe yourself bound in honor to fulfill the wishes of your parents, although they, them, although they opposed themselves to your inclinations. 
but this is false reasoning. I confess to you, my friend, that I love you, and that in my airy dreams of futurity, you have been my constant friend and companion. But it is your happiness I desire as well as my own when I declare to you that our marriage would render me eternally miserable unless it were the dictate of your own free choice. Even now, I weep to think that, borne down as you are by the cruelest misfortunes, you may stifle by the word honor all hope of that love and happiness which would alone restore you to yourself. I, who have so disinterested an affection for you, may increase your miseries tenfold by being an obstacle to your wishes. Ah, Victor, be assured that your cousin and playmate has too sincere a love for you not to be made miserable by this supposition. Be happy, my friend, and if you obey me in this run request, remain satisfied that nothing on earth will have the power to interrupt my tranquility. Do not let this letter disturb you. Do not answer tomorrow or the next day or even until you come, if it will give you pain. My uncle will send me news of your health, and if I see but one smile on your lips when we meet, occasioned by this or any other exertion of mine, I shall need no other happiness. Elizabeth Lavenza, Geneva, May 18th, 17 dash. Well, that is very generous of Elizabeth and very sweet and very kind and also kind of thirsty. Like, let's be honest, kind of thirsty of Elizabeth to be like, you know, this is my love letter to you and don't answer. You don't have to answer. Like, you know, I adore you and I love you. And if you don't feel the same, like, it's totally cool. Like, I get it. But I just need to see you again. I just need to see that smile on your face, bro. You know, it's a little bit thirsty. You know, she's saying, don't write back today. What she's really saying is write back today. Vic, come on, man. Write back today. I've got one shoulder exposed for you here, bro. Write back today. But yeah, I mean, what else, you know, what other conclusion can Elizabeth draw? It's a, it's a sensible conclusion that his misery and unhappiness may at least in part be related to his obligation, such as it were, to her. We know it's not the case. We know that Victor Frankenstein loves Elizabeth. Hey, Elizabeth, I love you. I'm the boy in the bubble. I love you, Elizabeth. Reach inside my bubble. I can't touch you. I'm in a bubble. He's in a bubble of his own making, a bubble of misery and, and misfortune and unhappiness. The bubble that he has created may be, in fact, impenetrable because of the material from which it is woven, which is guilt, misery, malice, vanity, hubris, and all the other fluttering creatures that flew out when Pandora opened her box. The creature Frankenstein ultimately created, ultimately he created, was himself, was it not? He created Frankenstein. And when we say, don't call, don't call Big Buddy Frankenstein, Frankenstein's the name of the doctor who made him, well, but he did create an abomination. And the abomination is named Frankenstein. Frankenstein has become an abomination. He just sucks, right? Like, he was a precocious kid. He went off to English Dot. He, you know, studied 
the greats. He 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 surpassed his peers. He you know he became the great natural philosopher of his generation, sort of. Uh, he went off to his lab. He had this idea for an experiment. He did it, and in doing so, as I said, he played a little Icarus. He flew cl- too close to the sun. He meddled with God's business, and the Lord has smited him by destroying everything that he cares about. It's biblical. I know I've sort of mixed up Greek mythology and Christian mythology and universal consciousness, new age bullshit. I know. Like I'm making, you know, I've, I've stirred it all up into one soupy mess. But in where I live here in the wilds of Connecticut, every year they do a thing at the church uh, around here, a little local church, and they have a little fair. And one of the things they do there is something called stone soup. And the way stone soup works is uh, different people bring different ingredients and they all go into the soup. And at the end, what you have is a delicious soup. Everything gets souped. Delicious concoction of soups. And so, you know, mythologically speaking, I think that's what I'm doing. But maybe when you combine that shit, all the shit, and you, you hit pulse on the old blender, you find something maybe a little bit closer to something true than any one of those things can be. So I don't know. We'll leave it there. Um, maybe this is a little maudlin. Maybe this is a little emo itself. Maybe I'm the emo kid this episode. I don't know. But, you know, there's some nice RVs out there. I don't know if you guys like RVing. Some nice RVs. I might go sell RVs. Maybe that's what I was born to do. Maybe that's what I love. You know, you walk into your national RV center. There I am. Little name tag on. Hi, what are you looking for today? What's it going to take for me to put you into this Winnebago? I could see myself saying stuff like that. How are we going to get this deal done? There's, these things are flying out of here. So I, I want to make sure that you walk out of here today with something you love. I want to get you out on the road today. Can we do that? I could see myself getting into that. Being some sort of scuzzy RV salesman. Damn. I would love that. Anyway. We'll end it there with the universal consciousness and, uh, you know, just something to dwell on. Something to think about. We're all thinking about it all the time anyway, so you don't need my instruction to think about it. You're already thinking about it, whether you're thinking about it or not. I got to get ready to go to Portland later this week. And, you know, they're all hippy-dippies out there, so they're going to they're gonna love my universal consciousness shit. Probably all I'll talk about. Nothing funnier than that, standing on a stage at the Helium Club in, uh, in Portland talking about universal consciousness. Oh, people are going to eat that shit up. Gobble, gobble. They're going to love it. And, uh, you know, I'll report back next week when we are back for another uh, consciousness expanding episode of Obscure... But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein, is produced by Robin Lynn, Mary Shimkin, Jennifer Brennan, and myself, Michael Ian Black, recorded in places as far and wide as California and the wilds of Connecticut and spots in between original music by Craig Wedgren 
join us at patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black, where starting at $5 a month, you can support this podcast and get access to all kinds of obscure goodies, including early episodes and writings and musings. There's also bonus podcasts. There is our semi-regular book club. All of it can be yours at patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black.